Join us in a world where you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Sit back as we discuss hard-won lessons from the best and brightest of the personal defense and competition shooting industry has to offer. Let us help you help yourself, no matter where you are in your personal path. Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. Now here's your host, John Johnston. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. I'm your host, John Johnston. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at BallisticRadio.com and get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, and other things at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. Hey, Joe. What's going on? Oh, not too much. Uh, We are adapting and overcoming and stuff like that today, though. People listening to this episode will be like, what are they talking about? And, of course, um, if you guys don't know, we record all these episodes. uh, In one day. Yeah, in one day. Um, You know, we usually get about four done. Occasionally, if my schedule has been horrible, we'll do. What's our record now? Six or seven? Oh, wow. Yeah, six, I think. Yeah, and that was. Long time ago. Yeah, couple months ago um that doesn't seem like it'd be that hard of a thing to do but yeah so anyway uh the point is we had a never mind i'm just gonna get into the episode hey look at that no conclusion to the story hey guess what joe what is that this segment's also brought to you by lucky gunner and federal premium ammunition whether there was a firefight or you do in fact want to worry about that little guy you need more ammo and when it's time to restock you can't beat Federal Premium Ammunition, and LuckyGunner.com. With a shipping department that's always moving at 88 miles per hour, if I order a case of American Eagle from Lucky Gunner on Thursday, it's at my doorstep ready to shoot before the weekend starts. Head to LuckyGunner.com today to check out their in-stock lineup of Federal Premium Ammunition. And remember, unless you're on fire or drowning or some other set of circumstances I am not considering right now at this moment, you can never really have too much ammo. Um, so joining us today, and I'm super excited, it's Eric Gelhaus. Eric, how are you? Hi, John. How are you this morning? Oh, I, uh, I can't complain, man. I am living the dream. Life is good. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. For those that don't know, uh, who are you and what do you do? And we will hop right in. So what do I do? Uh, not much right now. I recently retired after uh, 29 years of law enforcement, a little bit longer of public safety stuff. Did some military uh, before and during that. I uh, was a, kind of a reformed gun writer now. Um, student of a lot of this stuff. I teach a little bit. Worked for Aimpoint for a while and uh, kind of bounced through the academic world. Um, not going, stopping before my doctorate, but pushing into it a little bit. I mean, you could you could be Dr. Gelhaus. That'd be cool. Mm, yeah, no, it's too much more work in school, and I'm not really feeling that. <laughs> um, yeah, as someone that's considering higher education, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm in my, uh, I guess I'm going to be in my, either the end of my mid-30s or the beginning of my late 30s uh, in March, and I'm just looking at more, I'm looking at going back to school and just like, oh, I don't know about this. Um you know, and, and you're a year or two older than I am, and I can't imagine it gets any easier. So, I finished grad school at 51, mm. and yeah, I was ready to be done with it. Yeah. Um, so, 
you know, so you're someone that I've had uh, a few conversations with uh, throughout the years, and I've always been super impressed. Uh, and you've certainly been inside of the community. And as you said, reformed gun writer, which we could do a whole show on. Uh, is there like a 12-step program for that? Or, you know. Um, no, it was kind of cold turkey. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm done. Um, I, I guess my first question is, so, you know, you recently retired. You're you're someone that I know to um, be what I would consider, and I don't know what the, I mean, I guess traditionally you would say switched on or uh, generally knowledgeable. I just think of you as a good dude that knows what he's talking about, um, which you don't always run into on the admin side in the law enforcement community. And I'm not trying to be disparaging of, of, of police or police admin, um, but... You know, I've dealt with some, like as an outsider, specifically on the training side of things, that it was just like, ooh, um, you know, and, and you're not that dude. So I guess my first question would be, um, what are some of the things to consider uh, when, you're, when you're doing that job? Like, how do you, how do you prep guys and gals to be able to do what they need to do inside of that environment. So looking at it from a couple different perspectives, one I taught for the office for several years, but then I got to do the field training officer um, role. I spent about uh, on on and off 10 years in that side of the business. So I was working one-on-one with a, with a new in our case deputy um, and then eventually became a sergeant um, and ran a shift for my last three and a half years in the business. Um, what I tried to do with my guys was give them case law. Hey, here's what the courts are. Here's what the event was. Here's what the courts are talking about. Um, as we got more and more video available to us, sitting down, watching the video in the shift, running it through, having guys talk about it, look at their opinions, throw in the case law, throw in training tactics and kind of work through that, um, and let them process stuff and try to kind of front load some responses or be able to go, okay, I've seen this before. I have a mental map for how this might play out um, and work through kind of that to, to, to tee them up for success by having seen either the right way to do it or a right way to do it or potentially ways that could, where things could have been done better um, so that they have some idea of how to work through the problem when they encounter it. Well, <clears throat> so and and that sort of fits into everything that I know about, you know, through other people's work and research, right? So I I, I wouldn't consider myself to be um, originating much of anything, and, and whether my opinion counts or not is going to be very open to to uh, you know personal uh, personal feelings and opinions of other people listening to this. But as far as the everything that I have seen indicates that people that you know, have good mental maps uh, and have have considered things in a pre-need basis uh, versus in a reactionary in the moment basis tend to perform better um, in the moment? Yes. So you're not trying to scramble. Um, and I'm not going to da- go down the Hicks Law Road because John Hearn has done a much better job of, of explaining what people think it is and what it really is. Right. We got scrambling, trying to figure out what that response is. You got, you 
you've got a way to respond to it based on what you're seeing, how you're processing that problem. And you're, you've, you've already discarded a number of potential responses that may not be the best um, and are just working through one, two, maybe three better responses. Right. Right. Well, and so you've been through the, the force science material as well, right? Um, yeah. So I went through that back in 2012. And then there's um, another West Coast entity that came from the uh, military aviation community. It used to be California Training Institute. Mm-hmm. I can't think of their name, their their current name, but they do similar material, but with a slightly different take on it. Right. Um, and and the reason I bring that up is is because you know that's that seems to be a pretty well understood um, area uh, inside of the you know at least inside of the community where people uh, study this for a living um, live, but it seems like something that is not widely understood. Well, I I, uh, I don't want to paint with that broad of a brush. It seems like an area where it can be overlooked inside of the admin side of things. Is that, is that your experience as well? Or, you know, do you have a differing opinion or does it just depend? I, I think it depends on the organization. I think it depends on the experience of the people within the organization um, as to whether or not they, they understand how events play out or how, how these, these encounters actually happen. Um, some have made it through their career without having to deal with some of these events um, on a personal level. Some have investigated them and rose to the top. Uh, I don't always see a lot of people in the business who made it to chief or elected sheriff who had spent a bunch of time on the training side of things. Um, and, and I think by not having done so, it's not that they're bad administrators. It's not that they're bad individuals. They just haven't necessarily seen some of this material and kind of understood it in a hands-on way. Right. Um, so, well, let's do this. We got to go to break. Um, and I was going to ask a question, but then I'm immediately going to need to interrupt you, uh, which <laughs> is just frustrating for everyone. Right. Um, so right now we're talking with Eric Gelhouse. You're listening to ballistic radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat, makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977. A legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories, as well as the EDC X9L, a long slide version of the EDC X9, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match grade accuracy, superior ergonomics, and concealability with modern service pistol capacity as well as reliability at www.wilsoncombat.com. So we're talking with Eric Gelhouse, and we're sort of discussing, um, right now at least, the admin side of things and, you know, the importance of essentially pre-need decision-making and uh, removing novel stimuli um, from from sort of the, the encounters that people could possibly face, is there any specific area that you've found um, that it that it behooves people um, to pay extra attention to 
in sort of that pre-need decision-making environment? So the, the more exposure I think you can get to things, uh, you talked about the novelty, yeah. that would be one of them. So if you can get into competently taught force-on-force training, um, where you're going up against another human being who's thinking, who's breathing. Preferably it's scripted, but you still got the variations of dealing with another human. Outside of that, if you could get into a simulator, um, a good use of force simulator to kind of work through some of this stuff. Um, agencies can go out and buy a, the Vertra that's at 270 degrees, but there's a handful of local um, gun stores in my area that are now starting to buy one screen simulators to use for CCW classes. Huh. Um, and I, so starting to kind of push that at the scenario, the simulator training out to folks. Watch the videos um, that are coming out. Look at, you know, news articles are horrible, so you try to dive a bit deeper into it. But if you can see what the courts are saying, um, not only on the law enforcement side, though, that's where the majority of the case law comes from because it's lawsuits, not necessarily criminal side, criminal stuff that drives the case law. But look at what the courts are saying about what they think is reasonable um, versus what isn't reasonable. You're always going to have politics come into play outside of an organization. Um, you're going to have media come into play and how they drive and present events, um, whether or not they're going off their their emotional reaction to it or whether or not they're talking to people who can give them some insight and then letting that insight kind of drive the reporting. Well, and that's something that maybe we'll, t- we'll touch on um, a little bit later because uh, I know you've got some personal experience with, with that. But um, before before we get into that, um, as, as far as on the – you know, so the the training side and preparing people to deal with these like super chaotic situations. Um, I know that. You know, I, I I I've seen a couple of your write ups of like things that have occurred uh, inside of your agency uh, as far as you know, good responses by your your folks to very chaotic situations. Um, is there anything in particular that you think is a predictor to success in those situations that, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think time on the front end, um, even if it's just kicking it around with another, kicking it around in your mind, kicking it around with another person, um, the processing of things, um, how you're running it in in your mind as it's playing out, as you're going into it, as it's playing out. Um, the last few years, I was doing it more from a supervisory role, so I was either going to it as it was, as the event was kind of playing out, or I was getting there in the aftermath of the event and then working through it from the organizational part. Um, when I was still still a working deputy, um, it was more how things played out, how they panned out. So. Um, the visualization on the front end, in addition to the scenario or simulator training, I think running things through in your mind and how you're going to handle them. Um, believe that away from the training community, the phrase is autogenic breathing. I could be wrong, but otherwise it's it's in the police world been called combat breathing. So it's 
putting yourself in a situation where you're consciously regulating your breathing, slowing yourself down to get the oxygen in. And I think not only by slowing yourself down on slowing your breathing down to where you get the oxygen in, but just by consciously slowing yourself down, you start to process some of the stuff a little bit better. Um, I, I had a pursuit that I was in where the video caught me doing the breathing during the majority of the pursuit um, when I wasn't having to be on the radio, but it actually got me consciously doing the breathing and slowing everything down. So I think that's one of those things that helps. Um, so a, a little while ago, you sort of mentioned how emotional responses to things, um, can affect the aftermath and, and you know, there, there's a wide gulf between how things are reported versus what actually happened. Um, mm-hmm. I know that. I know that you've got personal experience in that area. Um, I guess my my first question would be, you know, it, it if you're in this environment even a little bit, you sort of had this idea that the media is not going to do you any favors no matter how justified you are uh, in what you do and how reasonable your actions are, um, like, in the moment and viewed afterwards. But were you caught off guard at all by um, by how that actually plays out in real life? And you and you can share as much or as little of the details of, of the event we're talking about. Um, completely up to you. But was was that was that a surprise? I guess I ex- I didn't expect great or. F- great or even maybe fair media coverage um, on it. I really didn't expect it to go to the level that it did um, with the media um, and to some degrees with people in the community. Yeah. Actually, and and with people in the community. Um, There had been fairly early on and within a couple of days of the, the aftermath that it was just shooting and I'll talk about it here in a sec. Um, an interview with a um, professor at a university of South Carolina. He does an awful lot of law enforcement use of force work and the local paper had talked to him. They'd given him the fact pattern as it was known, which was, which never changed. Um, And he was like, no, it's reasonable. If this happens, this is perfectly reasonable for an officer to respond. I was like, okay, great. And they completely disregarded that. Um, how things were, per- how the outcome was perceived drove everything. And there was very little attention or kind of understanding explanation of what my trainee and I perceived we were facing when we encountered the situation. So it made it real difficult because for quite a while, we looked at it from what we saw that afternoon whereas everybody else was looking at it from or an awful lot of people were looking at from how they saw it in the paper and the news media the next morning. Well, and that's, uh, it, it seems very interesting to me that, um, you know, and I've, I've fallen victim to this as well, right? Where, so I, I know just enough about how these things go down to be dangerous. Right. Um, 
and uh, a completely unrelated event. Uh, you know, a video was posted, and you know, given the totality of the circumstances, the officer's action of that video completely, um, completely justified. Uh, you know, if you had all the information that they had, uh, right. looking looking at the video, I'm like, ooh, that looks kind of iffy. Uh, and that and and you know, I I think my I, th- I think my response, um, you know, when the question was raised, and, and this isn't a private group, so this isn't me like, prog- you know, like exclaiming publicly like my opinion on this because I wouldn't do that. Um, but this was, you know, a, a peer group where the entire point is to sit around and discuss these sorts of things. Um, and I remember going, uh, it's probably okay, but like that looks kind of that looks kind of iffy. And then someone. Um, that had more information was like, well, here's, you know, here's what was actually, you know, going on. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, but mm-hmm. like, even me knowing better was still, you know, kind of like, kind of like, I don't know. Um, and so it, it seems, it seems that that's a pretty natural human tendency. Um, we got to go to break and I'd like to, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And then if you'd like to get into details, you can. Um, okay. Right now we're uh, talking with Eric Gellhouse. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. <laughs> Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. This segment brought to you by BigTexOutdoors.com. BigTexOutdoors.com is the best place for you to find all of your everyday carry needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe need all the lumens from Surefire at the lowest price? No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room and now you need an RMR on your carry gun? Well, BigTexOutdoors.com has those. Glock accessories? Yes. Fast, cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, BigTexOutdoors.com has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike, everybody likes Ike, and you'll like Ike too. Visit BigTexOutdoors.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So we're talking with Eric Gelhaus, um, and you were sort of saying um, after your, the specific incident that we're referencing, um, es- essentially the response inside of even our community was was mixed, and it seemed like a lot of people... Um, I actually got into a pretty bad fight with someone uh, over you uh, when all that was going on, and and I may or may not it might might be one of the few times I've ever told someone that if I saw them in person I would hurt them, um, but it, it seemed like a a lot of people just didn't care what actually happened, you know? Yeah. Yes. Um. So I. Do you want to talk about what actually happened or uh, completely up so, to you? I'll give kind of a little bit. I won't give necessarily a 5,000 foot view of it. It may be a little bit higher. Um, so it was October of 2013. Um, had a trainee with me that day. We uh, pulled into what was kind of what was the highest crime area in our county at the time. Um we were on our way for my afternoon coffee because a caffeinated field training officer is a happy field training officer. Right. Uh, and I told Mike, I said, look, you know, it's, it's time for coffee, but if you find um, anything along the way, we'll go ahead and deal with it. 
So pull into the area, um, murders, attempted murders, home invasion, robberies, assault with a deadly weapon. Um, I recovered a whole bunch of just about every human portable firearm in that neighborhood. Um, narcotic search warrants, gang search warrants, various assignments over the years, all in that area. Um, we come across an individual walking up the street, um, carrying what looks to be an AK-47. Um, California, whether you agree with it or not, California is not an open carry state. Um, there are county ordinances about carrying firearms in areas, residential areas and things like that. If you're out hunting in the woods, it's totally different. Um, Anyway, we see this individual is walking away from us. Um, his clothing is the color of the gang predominant to that area. Um, it's about 3.15 in the afternoon. So I have also have three schools getting out in very close proximity, um, within less than a mile. As I'm putting out the radio traffic, my trainee hits the siren. Um, the individual turns and looks at us. Um, he, we give him some commands. His response is to turn towards us when he turns towards us. What looks to be the AK-47 comes up and rises. And when I say it looks to be an AK-47, I can see the wood stock. I can see the wood grip, the magazine, the wood forearm. Right. Um, shooting ensues at a uh, distance about 23, 25 yards um, when it happens. Um, subject's hit. He goes down. We get assistance there. Um, we go up to – we've called for fire and ambulance. We've got everybody coming. Uh, we go up to secure him, and at that point, I realized that what both my training and I thought was an, was an AK-47 is an airsoft replica with the orange tip removed. Right. Um, we get him searched, secured. Paramics are coming in. Um, I don't see it, but they pull a second airsoft gun out of his waistband, um, and it goes from there. What I don't know for several hours and what seems to be what drove a lot of the reaction to it over time was that that male was a, was a teenager was a fairly young teenager um who had consumed a fair amount of controlled substances earlier in the day before right before him. so that's kind of the nutshell on it so i guess <clears throat> let me let me think about um So I guess what, and I, and I remember when this occurred, right? And I remember um, on how it was reported. And so the facts of the case were not what was reported even a tiny bit. So I guess my question would be, how would you prepare, you know, anyone that's listening? Um, I mean, I guess, should there be a reasonable ex expectation by anyone that, either goes armed professionally or chooses to go armed as, as a private citizen uh, for personal protection, should there be an expectation in your experience that the media is going to get the facts of the case correct um, in your mind? No. So I, I don't expect the media to get the facts correct. Um, historically, one of the problems that I see within law enforcement in terms of these events is we haven't done a good job getting the information out fast enough soon enough. 
Um, as a profession, we're getting better, but there's still a lot of lag on that. Um, for, I'm going to use the phrase decent, normal human being because people want to argue citizen and civilian, and I don't. Right. Um, so for a decent, normal human being in a self-defense situation, you don't have an agency that has a reputation to maintain that's trying to explain why you did what you did. Right. And they have a reputation to maintain with the investigation, but not in terms of how they represent you. Um, attorneys may or may not be well-versed in these events and being able to communicate with the press um, about the intricacies of why these things happen and the intricacies of the law. Um, some attorneys are really good criminal defense attorneys, but you're, they're not defending a criminal in this case. They're defending a decent, normal human being who defended themselves, and they don't always necessarily know how to work, make that switch. Um, I, I would expect the media to, based on experience, look for anything they could perceive as unfavorable and find a way to use it against you. So the, in my case, the fact that I'd been in the military was used adversely. Um, that I was a use of force instructor was used adversely. Um, things I had written in articles, uh, specifically an article on surviving an ambush, was used against me repeatedly in the media. So and these, go ahead. Well, I would, what's funny to me about that specifically um, is you would, like I traditionally would would view those as all positive things. Like th this speaks to, um, you know, the prior knowledge that someone had. Uh, it, it sets up, frankly, uh, if I were a private citizen, right, and, and I got into a shooting that for whatever reason went to trial, um, the more documentation that I have of what I knew going into that, the better it is for me. Um, and, and I still believe that, but like things that, that I or really anyone familiar with um, defending a, you know, a shooting in, in court, you're saying the media is using as negatives against you. In my case, they use those as negatives against me. It was um, in the aftermath and working through everything it was very difficult because a lot of the things that I thought I had done good um, professionally, service to the country, service to the community, teaching, writing, all the things that kind of go down that road um, were viewed as adverse. Uh, and that kind of took a lot of mental processing to work through as it was playing out. Right. Um, so how, how do you prepare people for that sort of mental resiliency? I mean, so, it, it, you know, if, if someone that's got people or even just someone listening to this right now, if you if you're in a if you're in a you know leadership role to where uh, you've got people you're responsible for that might be put in this situation and frankly if you're listen if if people are listening to this they're in that role uh, yep. on on some level or another like how do you how do you help prepare people for that possibility? So I think he, this is going back to that kind of front-loading stuff, not only with the scenario training, but really know the law, um, really know the case law. What I had a pretty good handle on case law, um, both circuit court and federally before this happened. 
I really nerded out on the case law aspects afterwards. Um, having been through force science, having a much better understanding of how the brain works, what the brain's looking at, how it processes, helped me to understand how the event played out the way it did and why. Um, trying Being in a position where you know enough to take to take an active role in working with your attorneys and work, working with other people in the aftermath. So that's all things you kind of, you have to do on the front end. So I would really make sure people know in addition to, you know, the requirements for a concealed carry permit, what does their state say about self-defense? When can they, when can't they? Um, you know, there's attorneys out there who specialize in this stuff. There's folks out there writing books. Know what it is that, that you can or can't do in your state. Um, if you have one of these multi-state CCW permits, um, like they happen to do a Utah one local local to me, and it's good in a bunch of states, I'm going to go take it because I'm just really curious on how these these other states view things. Um, know those. Have as good a handle on it as you can. Realize that not every problem is going to be a firearm problem. Um, and if you can solve it, if you can fix it at a lower level, um, you hopefully won't go down that road. But by the same token, really think about what you're putting out in public, what you're putting out on social media. Um, I always tried to be on the internet under my real name. Part of it was because I just really wasn't terribly creative on screen names. Yeah. Um, but I also tried to, to post things that weren't going to jam me up, that weren't going to cause me problems. Um, and I was surprised at how things that I had made an effort of not saying poorly came back to haunt me because of how they were perceived by people outside of the law enforcement, military, decent, normal human being training community. Well, here, I'd like to, I'd like to talk that about that a little bit more. Um, we got to go to break though. Right now we're talking with Eric Gelhouse and you're listening to ballistic radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. Um, so, before the break, you were you were sort of talking about how um, you had always tried to make an effort to be very um, careful in in what you said online and how you represented things online, um, and thought you had done a pretty good job of doing that. Um, but so I guess, I guess my question would be, do you think that we oftentimes forget that, um, some of the base assumptions that we're operating under, uh, inside of our community and pretty much most everyone that's listening to this will be members of our community. Um, are not base operating assumptions that non-community community members are are operating under. I that was a really like ugly way to ask that question. Like the language there wasn't very clear. But do you do you see what I'm I'm asking? Yeah. So just make sure I I understand it. Do I think that we in in our community view things differently than folks who aren't in it do? Yeah. Yes. Um, specifically one that was, um, 
kind of tossed, well, was tossed back when it was kind of. There had been a discussion on the firing line that had lasted for a couple, it was a firearms board. Um, it's been around since the late 90s. There was a discussion that had lasted a couple years on if you ended up in a use of force situation against somebody who it turned out had a BB gun. Uh, and this thing had gone back and forth for a couple of years and there were a bunch of different responses on it. And I had offered that it would, regardless of why you did it, it would come down to your ability to explain to the cops in the court why you did what you did. And it would have to be reasonable. Um, that was viewed by reporters and um, by part of the legal system as being premeditation, that I had premeditated the event based on that um, post. Huh. I'm, I mean, I'm having a hard time, well, seeing how that could possibly be the case, um, knowing what I know about how vision works, especially at 25 yards. Um, you know, and how, how old were you at the time of the incident? It was 2013. So I was 48. Okay. Uh, wore prescription glasses, had them on that day. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. we did, we did visual recreations of the whole event at the distances involved from the positions that were involved, um, with replica firearms, with the orange tip on, without the orange tip. Um, and with a real firearm. And while you, the people involved could clearly see the orange tip um, on the one that had it. Yeah. Um, when it came to the, the actual AK-47 and the AK, the replica AK without the orange tip, there was no way to discern the difference. Yeah, not, human, not, not humanly possible. Right. Um, and that's always kind of interesting to me when... When we're looking at stuff in, you know, afterwards, right, um, the number of times where essentially the expectation is that the the players in the event are able to be perform to a superhuman level, essentially, mm-hmm. like beyond the limits of human performance, um, it's... I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't know why that is. Uh, it's, you know, and it's, it, it's a thing. Let that me is, kind of give you one. Yeah. I was just going to give you one example of the stuff that came up in the case that I, that I think might help folks who aren't um, familiar with it kind of understand why. So if you're shooting a traditional handgun with iron sights, generally your focus is on the front sight, which means that everything behind the front sight's blurry and everything on the far side of the front sight is blurry. But it's about arms, that front sight's about arm's length. Sure. We were in, my event occurred at about 23 yards. So there was a lot of, from the judges involved in the case, they did not understand how I could not give the specific angle that the AK-47 had risen because once it started to rise, my focus shifted to my front sight. Mm-hmm. So I can't, I cannot tell you what was going on downrange in front of me at that point, because I'm seeing it about really clearly at about thumbs length. Right. I'm not seeing really clearly at 20 plus yards, but there were several people involved in this that couldn't understand why I couldn't 
tell you everything that was going on at 23 yards, if, if that makes sense as an explanation. Right. Well, I mean, and as someone that understands human vision and specifically understands how um, most normal people have to shoot, um, like that makes perfect sense to me. Like that, that's, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, so, but once again, that, that seems to be this sort of case where, um, some of the assumptions that I take for granted is just someone that's knowledgeable about this specific topic are not going to be taken for granted by individuals after the fact that are not involved. Yes. So as far as, um, You mentioned earlier, and I sort of I'd like to ask your thought on this. Um, you mentioned taking an active role inside of your legal team, uh, and and that was something that was helpful to you. Um, I had the opportunity to to, to go, and, and this is tangential, and I'll I'll, I'll get to it. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, a couple years ago to go jump out of airplanes with the um, uh, with the U.S. Army parachute team. Uh, multiple times. And, and the entire reason I got to do that is because, um, you know, we were out there for a training event. And at, at the time, I was a, a big fat guy. Now I'm just kind of a little fat guy. And they were they were playing around with, um, you know, how to do tandem jumps w- at the upper range of the safe weight limit and how to make that more comfortable for the person involved. Um, anyway, so I don't like heights. Uh, been out of airplanes before. Uh, never liked it very much, um, you know. So I'm I'm doing this thing, and it's just bad. It, it's not fun going out the door. Once I'm falling, it's a little bit better, but uh, not much. Well, at at a certain point, um, they go, "Hey, do you want to do you want to learn how to skydive?" I'm like, "Sure," and they gave me stuff to do. And just like feeling like I had some measure of control, what was going on was incredibly helpful to my mental state during the event itself. And and the reason why I go on this tangent and, and ask is I sort of observed that we tend to do better in situations when we feel like we have some measure of control over it. And is that your experience and is that why you think that it was helpful to you to take an active role inside of the the legal side of things? Um, I don't, I don't necessarily know if you back up. Um, I had that concern about the attorneys, what they knew in terms of not only the case law concerns, but also the human factor stuff, because in 2013, we didn't have as many people who had been through four sciences we seem to have now in 2019. So it seemed that not everyone necessarily had the info. Um, but it was helpful to me to be in a position where I was feeding information um, and getting them to pay attention and critiquing what was being done based on the information I had about case law, about force science, about the training side of things. It, 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 yeah, it did give me something to do in working through that problem. Right. Um, we're coming up on the end of the show, man. Uh, we're actually going to run just slightly long on this one, which is fine. Um, what would be, I mean, if you had to leave everyone listening with one final thought, 
what what would that be? To the degree that you can, you need to be your ex- your own expert. You're not going to be able to testify as the expert witness in the case, offering an opinion and explaining. But you need to know what your you need to know what your training was. You need to know what the laws are. You need to know why you did what you did and why that works within the legal parameters so that you can at least educate everyone on your side. Right. Right. Well, Eric, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show um, and talking about, you know, difficult subject matter that, frankly, not many people are are in the position to speak to with any sort of authority. Um, so I really appreciate it. And, and I know the listeners do, too. Um, so thank you very much for that. Thank you for having me on, John. I, I appreciate the opportunity to do it. Like I told you, I've talked to a couple groups within the public safety world about the aftermath of this one, but this is the first time, first time I've kind of talked, I have talked openly about it within the training community. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think that, um, I, I'll just leave it. At, I really appreciate it. Uh, I think it's super valuable. So I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, I know you get to go uh, to to Gun Mecca in, in just a little bit, so I hope you enjoy that. Um, and I look forward to talking to you soon, brother. I hope you, hope you be safe. So. Plan on it. It's about a 12-hour drive to gun site, and I'll be teaching pistol and carbine for the next couple weeks. So as Pat would say, life is good. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, it really is. So, hey, guys, make sure you check out our website, BallisticRadio.com. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. And, hey, keep leaving those five-star review on iTunes. Really helps us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe. See you next week.